Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ali Mo. Well, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 119, starting in verse 33 there. We'll stay there today. Now, if the Psalms are mostly the prayers of David, I think that Psalm 119 is David's prayer journal. I can see David with his moleskin notebook just scrawling his thoughts away in there. But it's a long psalm. It's 176 verses. So we're going to go all the way back to verse 1 to do the whole thing today. Sound good, right? I'm kidding. Uh, but one of the Puritans that I read, he actually wrote 200 sermons on this one single psalm. Uh, and it's kind of crazy. It's not organized with all of his subjects, each in its own section. They kind of overlap and they're kind of mixed together and repeat. Uh, but there is one single thread that runs through all of this psalm. It's God's law and obedience. It is the diamond of the Psalms. It has this worshipful attitude about obedience. It's framed in so many different ways. Someone once called it a rich and precious jewel of the word. Like when you hold up a diamond to the light and you see the light reflecting off all the cuts and facets, it twinkles at you. This is Psalm 119. So this morning we're going to be looking at some of those cuts, some of those little facets and twinkles, uh, three of them, okay? First, we're going to look at the delight of the law. Secondly, we're going to look at worthless things. And lastly, we'll look at the wide path. So the delight of the law, worthless things, and lastly, the wide path. So first of all, delight in the law. What is David asking God for in this prayer? And I'm glad you asked. Verse 33, our very first verse today. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. There's two things I really like about David's attitude by saying this to God. The first one is that uh, David has such a love for God. Because the more love that you have for somebody, the more you want to do the things they like. So the more you love somebody, the more David loves God, the more he desires to know his ways. So David's love for God strikes me. And then also David's teachability because he's been around God for a long time. I mean, he is like a, a, a super believer, 30, 40 years of serving God. After all these years, he's still teachable. Because a lot of times us old hands at Christianity, we kind of think that we have our doctrine down and we don't get after it like we used to. We become kind of know-it-all. We get this pride in our knowledge, but not David. And even though you could spend every hour reading scripture, David knows it's going to take something else to really understand it. It's going to take divine teaching to really understand them. Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament about the gospel to the congregation at Colossae. He says in Colossians 2.2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. God's mystery, which is Christ. Then John 6.45 writes, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. So don't think that just because you had that moment one time uh, that you've got it now. The attitude from our heart has to be, teach me, oh God. Salvation is guaranteed, remember that. But like uh, Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow character says to his seminary professor, he's like, how long is it taking to figure it all out? He says, it's going to take your whole life, maybe more. Like Paul said, you're going to have to work it all out. You're going to work your salvation out with prayer, with 
prayer and trembling. And we can't get any of this, we can't understand it all without the divine teaching of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who receives Christ and becomes a Christian has been taught by the Holy Spirit, been taught by God. There is an unlocking of scripture. There's an opening of the mind and the heart. And listen, in the school of the gospel, there are no degrees awarded because the learning and the growing are never supposed to stop. Salvation is gonna take you your whole life to understand. So understanding God's mystery, which is Christ, is like a kid learning how to write. You don't just start out writing freehand uh, grace and joy and big cursive letters, right? Because you remember as a kid, that special paper they gave you with the lines on it, with a little dotted line down the middle, so you make sure you get the height of your first letters just perfect, right? The joy of that, the squeals of excitement as your kid gets that first letter or your grandkid. Even that little first letter we write as Christians, uh, forgiveness. The first touch of grace is incredible, that one fact even. And as we get more mature, our writing is getting faster and smoother and it's flowing like calligraphy as we understand and integrate the gospel into all different aspects of our life. It's flowing, but we still want more. Teach me, O Lord. Salvation is less of a moment and more of a life. Verse 34 reads, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The only way you're gonna be able to keep the law is with your heart. Now, some of you like knowledge people and be like, oh man, we have to have knowledge. Yes, we have to have knowledge. That's important. You can know it in your head and you have to know it in your head, but you're only gonna do it from your heart because you really only do the things we love, Right? I know that chocolate chip cookie at 11 o'clock, that Harris Teeter chocolate cookie is not good for me. I know it, it's in here, but I really want it, all right? So you're only gonna be able to keep the law with your whole heart. The gospel leads us to a wholehearted, willing way of obedience that changes us from have to do God's law to want to do God's law. So rather than a half-hearted, teeth-gritting way of obedience, I've gotta, I gotta pull this off somehow. Like the next verse says, it becomes a delight to do God's law wholeheartedly verse 35 says leave me in the path of your commandments for i delight in it i delight in your commandments you know and in the bible the heart just isn't just about emotions the way the bible describes the human heart is as the seat of the will that's where we do things from so it's a deep devotion david wants to obey out of love for his lord so when we meet somebody and we fall in love, right, what starts to happen? We start looking for ways to devote ourselves to them more and more. We're kind of taking mental notes about what they like and what they don't like, or we're making sure that we're doing those things. We want to please them because our heart is bursting for them. And it's no different with Jesus. That's why he calls the church his bride. It's that kind of relationship. And David delights in it. Verse 36 reads, incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, the word inclined here means to stretch out, to lengthen, to extend. So David is asking for the only thing that will actually truly allow him to follow God. David is asking that God stretch out his heart, stretch out his will into a new shape. He want to close the space between David's emotional center, between his will and God's will, stretch his heart out over it. He wants to become one with God's will. David's heart inclines toward God's heart and they overlap until they become one, because we do what we love. If we're doing what God loves and we love it, our hearts are together. 
But I've got some bad news for you. There's something standing in our way of that. Among all the high thinking of delight and wholeheartedness and stretching out our hearts and inclining our hearts, something is blocking us. And David tells us what it is in the very next verse. That's our second cut, our second twinkle, our second facet, worthless things. Listen to verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your ways. One, our heart cannot simply turn to God on their own. We know we need divine teaching. David showed us that. Teach me, O Lord. But something else first has to be kicked out of our heart, has to be expelled from the throne of our heart. It has to be dethroned from the throne of our heart. Tracy went out of town for about a week a while back, and I got to watch all these movies she never let me watch when she's at home, okay? I'm like a really bad sci-fi fan. She's a sci-fi fan, but good sci-fi. I watch bad sci-fi. So this movie was called Infinite. It had Mark Wahlberg in it. It wasn't a bad movie, okay? But they had this weapon called the Dethroner. That's like a cool weapon, isn't it? And it, what, they shoot somebody with it, and it rips their soul and their consciousness out of their body. Happy thoughts. So we need to dethrone, we need to dethrone the worthless things that David is talking about. So what are these mysterious worthless things? Well, the language worthless things here is the same language as used to describe idol in the rest of scripture. So it's not so mysterious after all, but we're gonna have to trade one set of governing values that sits on our heart for another set of governing values. Now, when you turn from one thing to another, when you turn from worthless things and you turn to the things of God, that's another way of saying what? You repent. Repent means to turn, to change one's mind, right? We have to exchange the worthless things for life in God's ways. You have to replace one thing with the other in your heart. There's a base set of values that has to be changed. Listen to what John says in in 1 John 2.15. John's first letter, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So somehow we have to expel the love in our heart for the worthless things, for the things of the world, for our idols. But we cannot just leave the heart empty and throneless, right? The throne must be occupied. Nature abhors a vacuum. Power abhors a vacuum. And so does the human heart. Remember when Jesus drove out that spirit, he said, uh, unless it gets replaced with something else, that's just going to come right back in here stronger. And you're not going to be able to reason your way out of it, okay? You're not going to be like uh, Mr. Spock. Oh, well, Captain, uh, the Bible says we should do these things, so I see this is logical. That's not going to work. It's going to take something more. Because we do what we love, right? Something's gonna have to turn my eyes. Something will have to turn my eyes off those worthless things. That's David's language. You need something to catch your eye. You need to, something to capture your attention. You need a dethroner. Something that, can, that you can love instead of the worthless things. So it can take the place of what's been ruling your affections. Someone turned my eye one night. Actually turned both of my eyes. Someone turned my eyes one night as she walked by me in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, many years ago. I was a strapping young deputy U.S. Marshal on the mean streets of Fort Lauderdale, 
I had my dream job. I was 23 years old. Uh, I had a badge and a gun and a five liter Mustang all supplied by the US government. What could possibly go wrong, okay? But we had this crazy work life. We would get up at like four or five in the morning and we'd work until late in the evening and then we'd all go out and, you know, kind of like party together. Now, that was another life, okay? I don't recommend that. I'm not happy with that. I'm not proud of it. But it was a wild lifestyle that I should not have been involved in, okay? So one day a stunning young beauty walked by and she turned my eyes, literally. And you know what happened? That way of life, all that stuff that I used to do, all that going out and hanging out with the wrong people and doing the wrong things, I forgot about all of it. All that worthless stuff, I literally forgot about it. The old desires were completely gone. I had no desire to ever do that stuff again because all I could think about was spending my time with Tracy. So you just can't say, oh, oh, worthless things. Oh, partying and carousing and whatever it is. Maybe it's love of money or status or influence. I'm just going to walk away from you guys. You can't do that. You need to love something else. Exchange your love for one and put your love on another. Before Israel got delivered from slavery in Egypt, before they got saved, that's great language, isn't it? When they got their straw away, taken away from them when they're making their bricks, they were slaves, but they weren't thinking yet of God and what he was going to do for them about deliverance and salvation and all the miracles that were going to happen. All they could think about was how to get the straw back. They couldn't replace what they were doing with the bricks and put that love onto something else. If you get told to shut the world out of your heart, even if it's from this very pulpit, unless we give you something to replace it with, to turn your eyes toward something you can love more than brick making, you're just going to be trying to get the straw back. You may get better at God's ways for a while through the sheer force of will and bearing down, uh, or maybe through despair. Why can't I do this? I've got to do better. But if you're living through obligation, if that's your motivation, or you're living because of what other Christians might think of you, you're going to fail, and you're going to be miserable as you do it. Every minute of your uh, extreme effort it takes it to make you miserable. It's like fighting an addiction. Eventually you're going to go back to the pills. And it's going to grab you even stronger next time because nothing's on your throne. But David has the dethroner. Listen to what it says in verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. The steadfast love of God's salvation, the exact how of, how of the way God was going to do it, David did not know yet. There's hints all throughout the Old Testament. They knew it was coming. There was anticipation. But to us, we see the whole thing. We see how it went down. The steadfast love of Jesus, the promise of our salvation. And we're reconciling uh, the holiness of this lawgiver, the perfection of Jesus, his perfect love. And we're reconciling that with the fact that as bad as we still are, if you're a Christian, you're still safe in Jesus. Despite your ongoing failures, you're still safe. And it's only when you're operating inside that gospel space, applying it to your lives in a daily sense, that a transforming influence can be opened into your life. As Jesus sits more and more on the thrones of our hearts, the power he brings through the Holy Spirit to really change us, to really get into our sinful hearts, to get onto the throne, the image of Jesus, like a stamp pressed into clay, gets impressed onto our heart 
the very character of God. But it's only possible for the person who has found God as his or her portion. It's only possible for a Christian. And that portion started out small at salvation, but it should be becoming more and more satisfying. It should be becoming more and more enough every day. But so often, the further we get from salvation, it's less and less. Maybe the problem is that what we really love hasn't changed. Maybe we became a Christian, but all we've done is we've adopted Jesus as the way to get the things we really want. The things that really still sit on our thrones, that still sit there. And maybe Jesus only gets the throne part-time. Maybe you have a throne-sharing program going on in your heart between Jesus and the worthless things. Let me show you how it works. You know, maybe we're more or less good people, right? I'm a moral person generally. We do more good than bad. Then maybe God, I think God should reward me with my dreams. I mean, he owes me after all, right? I've done all these right things. That's moral therapeutic deism. He'll get you the big house, the F-type jag, and a full scholarship for your kid. If that's you, then the throne of your heart really isn't open to Jesus. It's still occupied at least part-time by the object of your prayers. You're just using Jesus to get what you really worship. Whatever you daydream about, the beach house, the great retirement, whatever that is, oftentimes that's what we worship. You need to be daydreaming about Jesus. I want you to take your prayers apart this week. Really just take them down to the core. Whatever you pray for the most, whatever's on your prayer list may be what you worship. Make a top 10 list. I found uh, a few years ago, my prayer life had totally flattened out because I was always praying for the same things, the things that I really wanted besides God. Lord, please give me that raise. Give me a nice, big, fat thrift savings balance. Or make it so I can afford to go to Cancun or Disney this year. How often do you pray just for more of God, just for more of Jesus, and just for more of the Holy Spirit? So the answer for me was opening scripture up, and Nick is really great at doing this. He'll pray from scripture right up here. Pray through the Psalms. I started praying through the Old Testament. I started praying through the New Testament. I started taking the names of the characters out and putting my names in. It opened up a whole world of prayer. So try that. That's your homework this week. It will help you to dethrone the old kings with the new king. Someone has a takeover on the throne. If you open yourself up to the loveliness and the glory of the things above, it's only then that things begin to happen. A real change happens in your heart and who you are. The old self begins to be replaced with the new self. We think back on all the times we've tried and failed. This very day even, we failed to obey. We've looked at God in the wrong light as some uh, killjoy cosmic lawgiver. The ways we've tried to be a good person and failed even at being a little less selfish. And then we see Christ. We see Jesus in his mercy and his loveliness. He still loves us and takes us back again. That's when we are enabled by our faith through the Holy Spirit to change. We see the glory in Jesus. We hear his voice calling out with full assurance and pardon and gracious acceptance. And it's only then that the love of the world and the worthless things gets expelled from the throne of our heart. 
One of my Puritans, a guy named Thomas Chalmers, he wrote a little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a catchy title, isn't it? Listen to what he said. When admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Jesus Christ, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way in which deliverance is possible. It's the only way that true freedom is possible too. That's our last point of the morning, the wide place. You know, when we think of God's plan, we usually think of things like, uh, you know, what career should I take and what job should I put in for? Uh, how should I negotiate my salary? What should the ceiling be? What should the low part be? Uh, should we live in this neighborhood? Should we get a bigger place? Uh, how are we going to pay for the kids' college travel team or club team for the kids, right? And we frame it in a way, we say it, we say it in a holy Christian kind of way. I'm just looking for God's path. That's not a bad thought. But what if I told you that those details weren't as important to God as we thought? I mean, show me a scripture where David is on his face about prayer, about what preschool to send his kid to. Now listen, I want you to pray about everything. I want you to pray about those things, okay? Be prayerful. But God's plan, his path has less to do with whether you invest your TSP in the C fund and more to do with obedience and following his commands and his precepts and his ways. Listen to verse 44 and 45. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. As David keeps God's law, because David is seeking out God's precepts, even just seeking the precepts, it says that he walks in the wide place. Scripture leads us to obedience first. And when we obey, that path actually opens up in front of us. It gets wider. God's law is not narrow-minded and style cramping. It opens the whole world up. It's a whole world of possibilities. It doesn't matter so much what the job is or where you live or what you do in life uh, as long as you are God's living in his ways. That makes possible the path of where your life goes. It opens up. The primary things is not what you do, it's how you live. Now the wide place is a metaphor for freedom here. That's the obvious, right? The narrow place means that there's no choices. It means you're walking one foot in front of the other on the tightrope. And you're hemmed in and there is no choice. You have to go straight. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Like for an example would be, I, I, really, need, I really love this, this salary so much I can't leave this job. But when you come to the Y place, that's where the choices start to come in. That's where the open doors start to show up. You can go over here and check this thing out. You can go over there and check something else out. David is not saying, I give up my freedom to serve you. He's saying, now I have true freedom because I follow your way. He says, I'm finally free because my heart has found you. I serve you with all my heart. You created me. You know me. You know how I operate how I work best. If I do these things you tell me and I don't do the other things, if I restrict my freedom to do the worthless things, then I'm going to be freed up to experience life in your ways. And if you're a Christian, actually, if you're a human being, you've been created for a specific operating environment. If you take a goldfish bowl and smash the contents out onto the floor and that fish goes out on the carpet, 
Do you think that that fish is going, sweet freedom? The fish on the floor is in the wrong operating environment. In the very act of giving that fish its freedom, you've killed it. David is saying, I am free because I am your servant, because I am living in your ways. In Christianity, there are a lot of goldfish living outside the bowl. Maybe you're in the wrong operating environment. Maybe you're flopping on the floor and your gills are struggling for air. You're on the narrow path because there's things you're afraid to lose. So you sin. You have to keep it. You have to get it. You lie. You cheat. You steal to hang on to it. But you're really just a fish out of water. That's not freedom. You're a slave to sin. It's killing you. Usually we think that freedom is we can do whatever we want. That's the cultural definition. You can do whatever you want. There's no rules. There's no restrictions. That it's the highest good. That is false. True freedom is really about finding the right restrictions for yourself. Real freedom comes from losing some freedoms in order to gain others. It's called delayed gratification sometimes. Whatever you're trying to do in life, if you design a set of restrictions, so you'll be successful in what you've chosen to do. So if you want to lose weight, you restrict your diet. You give up the freedom to eat certain things. If you want to make the varsity, you restrict your time in the afternoon from video games so you can uh, go to practice. If you want a high salary, you give up the freedom not to go to school. You have to go to school to get that education. And if you're trying to live for God in his ways and precepts, you restrict yourself when it comes to the worthless things. David wrote in the very last verse, he says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The worth of it, the joy, he says, in verse 43, that David found his hope in God's rules. And that's not a saving kind of hope there, okay? God does that by grace alone. Jesus perfectly followed the rules for you, for your sake. But David's hope that is if he did the rules, David knew that whatever the outcome was after that, maybe like in verse 42, you know, he gets taunted or something or he doesn't get the job. But it didn't matter so much anymore because he was God's. His hope was in God. He was on the path. He was on the wide path. He was free. You know, Tracy and I, over 30 years, we fought a lot at first. But over time, we essentially became the same person. You begin to become the person that you're in love with. And if you really love Jesus, you begin to become more and more like him. Jesus gave up his freedom, all of it, for the cross. So you can walk on the wide path. You begin to become more and more like him, free to be who God created you to be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your ways. We thank you for the wide path. We thank you for the ability to obey you through the Holy Spirit as you change our hearts, Lord, as you incline our hearts to you. We pray that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, that you would let us see the wide path that your ways leads us to. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.